Hey, welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Valentino Soul. Hey, now. Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. Uh, I just started barely recording some Ruby Clips videos. These are kind of like rail, uh, Rails casts. So uh, go check that out. Um, we have a special guest this week, and that is Alec Larson. Alec, do you want to say hello and introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm Alec. Uh, I live in Portland, Oregon. I'm currently a staff engineer at Procore, uh, which is a company that makes um, construction management software. Okay. Um, and yeah, I think that's... Is there anything else you want to know about me? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um... I went. I found the motion project, which is uh, something that you worked on in the past, and it looked interesting as far as like being able to, with view components and things, um, add a bunch of stuff to your application, and then be able to, I guess, kind of what Turbo does now, where you can update pieces of your UI as you go. Um, anyway, you, you want to talk about what it does? I think I kind of botched that up pretty good, um, and then kind of explain uh, where things sit now with that kind of technology? Because I, I know we you said before the call that you're not working on it anymore. And so I'd love to see what you were using now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll talk a little bit about maybe the, the history of it and uh, how it came about. So um, this is a few years ago, like like circa 2020, which seems like ancient history somehow. I suppose it, it was actually that long ago. But um, uh there was a new technology that had just come out called Stimulus Reflex, and um, I was absolutely delighted by it. I think excellent work was done there. Um, I have had this, like, uh, I don't want to say prejudice, but just this for a long time until very recently, actually, I had this disposition that like JavaScript is just difficult to write. And I had a strong background in Ruby and Rails, and I felt a lot more proficient solving problems in Ruby. And so um, when I saw Stimulus Reflex and I saw the ability to create rich um, front-end experiences with less JavaScript, uh, I was really excited. Um, and I was also excited because I feel like there are differences between the client and server that um, are actually like really relevant when building certain kinds of experiences. So like, um, for example, if you want to build like a chat, right? Um, you basically end up writing two applications, one for the client and one for the server. And the primary reason why, in my view, is that you need to, um, you need to like share information between all of the devices and there isn't one, and the, the only place you can do that is in the server's, you know, environment because you need access to something like a database. Um, but all of the UI code has to run on the client. So um, to make this a little bit more concrete, it, like if you, if you build, you know, a chat application, probably you're going to have to have some code that, like, when the user clicks a button, um, it reads something from a text box and it, you know, writes some message to a WebSocket channel. And then, you know, on the other side, you're going to have to have the server listen for that message and then, you know, broadcast it to all of the clients. And maybe you want to also have to put that message inside of a database. So you really, like, you have these, like, two um, applications connected by an API, even though um, as a developer, you really only want to write one thing. And something like Stimulus Reflex uh, 
sort of solves that by allowing you to respond to things that are happening on the client in code that runs on the server. So suddenly it's just, it's a lot easier to, as soon as the user does something, um, write it to the database or, you know, broadcast a set of changes. Because it's like all of the code is running in one trusted execution context. So um, I really liked that about stimulus reflex. Um, However, uh, at, at the same time, GitHub was really pushing view component, and I, I think they still are. I'm not as plugged into the Ruby on Rails world um, anymore, but I think view component is still um, a pretty big thing. And at that time, um, it seemed like it was going to be a bigger thing than I think it ultimately turned out to be. There were some pull requests going into Rails, and actually, uh, I was under the impression that perhaps view component would be, or something like view component, some minimal subset of view component would be incorporated into the Rails framework. What ended up happening um, was more that uh, action view was extended in a way to make it so that view component could be written without monkey patching, which I think is a good compromise. But um, the component style of writing um, UI, I don't think is really like, like that doesn't really have first class support inside of the, the Rails framework. But uh, at the time, it seemed like it might. It seemed like this like UI paradigm that we had seen in the JavaScript world of having components, which, which I really liked, was going to come to the Rails world. And at the same time, we were seeing this like, you know, responding to things inside of UI on the server. And I thought, what we need is, what we really need is some technology that will let us take view components and use and, and, have, um, and have code run on the server in response to events that's like scoped to that component and also have state that's scoped to that component. And um, that last bit about state is what I really think made motion different. And I can talk about that. But... Um, I guess before I do, I feel like I kind of went on a long meandering thing. Did that make sense? Is there anything you want to dig into there? Yeah, I'm not sure if I completely follow along. I haven't used Stimulus Reflex. Um, I know the guys that initially wrote it, but um, yeah, I I guess the part of it that I I don't completely understand is, um, so what you're trying to do is you're trying to have view components that within the component, and I, I understand the components. I talk to people in the React uh, community quite a bit, actually, um, even though I don't write a whole lot of React. But anyway, so, yeah, when there's an event in the component on the on the client, then they have React hooks and things like that that handle a lot of that stuff, right? And they'll manage state, and whatever. Um, and so what you're looking for is you're looking for having some way of having that trickle into the server so that the server can respond to it and then over a WebSocket or something, send you know a response back so that the client can then react to whatever happened on the server. Is 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 that more or less what we're looking at? Or yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and it's worth noting that at the time, Stimulus Reflex was doing something like that at the page um, level. And right. I want I want to be careful. It was it was uh, there, there were other. Um, it was possible to extend Stimulus Reflex in a way to make it not work at the page level. Um, so it's not as though this was like a fundamental limitation stimulus reflex, but, um, I wanted to make something that would specifically make it easier to have view component, um, 
style components uh, be able to work in this way. So I really wanted like little classes with states that could uh, with methods where you could bind methods on that class to things happening in the front end and update that state and re-render the component and then um, you know continue in that way, uh, similar to how React works. Right. Okay. Um, and so uh, at that time, um, I was fortunate. Uh, Underbridge Software was my employer at the time. And actually, you'll see this project is underneath their um, scope. Right. They were kind enough to um, indulge me <laughs> in this, basically. They were like, let's do it. We were working on... Um, we were working on a, like, like a relatively large application where we thought that this might have some benefit. There was interest in using view component. And um, separately, there had been interest in React, but we were already using a large Rails monolith. So we were wondering, could we get some of the benefits of React inside of our existing Rails code base? And so um, in this way, uh, this project was born. Um, and it was a fun project for a long period of time, or I guess maybe not a super long period of time, a, a few months. Uh, it got some attention, some people used it, but um, it ultimately, I think, um, has been kind of like, like uh, as the ecosystem evolved, um, it became possible to do a lot of the things that motion does in other ways with sort of like more mainstream solutions. So now I'm thinking of like Hotwire and Turbo, and um, it all, there, there were also some limitations with like uh, this design and how view component works. That that means that it, it's hard to get. There are some problems that people run into, uh, and if you look at the open issues, you'll see them. Things like being able to access like the cookies and the session when the component isn't rendering. Those sorts of problems really go deep into how Rails was extended to support view components. And um, in order to solve those, we'd probably have to leave view component behind, which is one of the major design goals of the project was to sort of bring reactivity to view component. So right. if we also have an API that isn't compatible with view component anymore, it's like, what, what's the point of the project? Um, there maybe are some other ways to solve it, but um, I, I didn't quite see a way. So... Um, I think at this point, if I'm being like totally transparent and honest, I would say that if you're looking for the kind of reactivity that motion provides, like in particular components uh, that have state and, and um, then like, or you just want to have, if you, so if you just want to have something running on the server and responding to what's going on on the client and you want to use Ruby and Rails, then I think Turbo is probably your best bet. Turbo and Hotwire and, and the, those, those modern frameworks, they're like well supported uh, by the ecosystem and they can accomplish that. Uh, I, to the best of my knowledge, and I'm not, I'm not as familiar with these since I haven't been using Ruby on Rails in the past couple of years, I'm not as familiar with how far you can push these. I don't think by default, there's an easy way to have um, what I would call stateful components. And by that, I mean like you the user interacts with a component and just that one component on the page re-renders. Uh, like something, something like that, I don't think is quite as easy to do with Turbo. And I think if you want the property of, um, you know, you have nested components and the parent component is allowed to re-render, but uh, the child component state is preserved across the parent re-rendering, I think that in particular, um, 
I, I don't know if in Turbo's paradigm it's it's possible. I don't know of a way to do that. But um, if you want something like that, then actually I think what you're looking for has now come to the React ecosystem in the form of server components. And so, um, yeah, I, it's actually been super interesting seeing like um, the JavaScript ecosystem move towards the server and the like Ruby on Rails being like like the server ecosystem move towards the client. And I feel like we're kind of we're kind of meeting in the middle. And it's just it's it's really interesting, like having having worked in both in different times of my career. Uh, for the longest time, I was working on Ruby on Rails applications. We were talking about you know SEO and um, being able to just link to a section in the app or being able to like refresh the page and keep your state and accessibility, right? Like you can tab around, um, you can use a screen reader. And these were all things that kind of you just got for free if you used standard browser components with HTML. And it was easy to do that in like a form-based, you know, full page refresh server um, situation that you would build by default with Ruby on Rails. Um, but it didn't have as much pizzazz as you could get with JavaScript. You know what I mean? And so I feel like it, it's just, it's been interesting to watch this. Like, like um, the like server rendered frameworks have sort of been making their way towards the client. And um, at the same time, React has been making its way towards the server. And yeah, like I said, I think now they've met in the middle. If you're on the server side, if you want to be primarily server side and you want to reach out to the client, then I think, you know, something Turbo with Ruby on Rails is a really good solution. If you're primarily on the client side and want to do a few things on the server, then I think React Server Components uh, and Nest.js is a great solution. And so, um, I don't know, it's really, it's really cool. I feel like for a long time, these two communities were kind of in competition with each other, but we've kind of ended up with parallel solutions. And it's been really fun to see that growth. Yeah, yeah you know... What we're talking about here, let's let's take a little step back, right? Because we we keep saying components, uh, and they do mean different things, right? On on both the client and server side, right? Because the real side has shaped it to now GitHub at taking advantage of the naming view component, uh, and the front end is taking advantage of the browser API of web web components, right? Uh, and really, they all mean web components for the browser. <laughs> um, just it's just kind of how they're manipulated. I, I don't. Well, I, I think I think it depends on the framework you're using. The word the word in 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 React, I think component, it refers to a concept from their framework that has both. Yeah. It's like an, an encapsulated section of the view with internal state. Um, but it just that's true. A DOM, right? Yeah, but it doesn't. Web components are a separate thing. It's actually yeah, built what, into the browser that uh, React, to my knowledge, doesn't make use of currently. Yeah, there's a web component standard that um, it's kind of, it seems like it comes a little bit into vogue and then people move away from it again. And then it's, it, I've, I've heard people talking a, little, a bit more about it lately. So um, people are seeing the capabilities there. But yeah, effectively, a web component is a way of encapsulating DOM together that is an actual standard in uh, HTML5. And then, um, Right, and then with with view components, it's it's even different there because, um, right, there isn't encapsulated state like there is in React unless you put it into DOM elements in some kind of like data property or something like that, which is actually how Stimulus and um, Turbo manage the data. Right, they stick it into the the DOM elements. So, 
Um, largely the idea is the same in the sense that it's, hey, there's this area of the, I want to say the board, I've been playing too many board games, but this area of the web page that, you know, functions as a unit and we expect everything here to kind of travel and mutate as a unit, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's ultimately about, you know, to use buzzwords, encapsulation and composability. Everybody, it's, it's about limiting the, the states in the... Well, and, and I, think, I, think, um, I think where it comes from is uh, when you interact with an application visually, you, um, you, you kind of see components, mm-hmm. right? Like you, like you see a little... Um, I mean, obviously you see elements on the page, you see like a text box, but like I right. logically perceive like a little chat window with a send button as a, as a kind of like component. Um, right. So I don't know, you can, it's just, it's, I don't know, it's a way of thinking about how applications are divided, where the goal I suppose is to something like divide and conquer your um, state via visual hierarchy. And so I think that works very well for user interfaces, actually, which which yeah. um, is why frameworks like um, not just React, but, you know, SolidJS, Spelt, um, I think Phoenix Live View internally uses a component style uh, architecture. So that's, you know, a non-client side. I don't know for thing. sure. Yeah, I, yeah. Actually, I don't know for sure either. Um, I so know it I uses think, WebSockets kind of like what we were talking about before. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I really shouldn't speak on it because I guess I guess I don't know. I, I know somebody who's used it and I've heard them talk about it, but I don't want to garble what they say, not having used it myself. Yeah, we have the Elixir Mix podcast. So if people want to go learn more about that, we've had plenty of people, including Chris McCord, come on and talk about it. But um what what I think is interesting here and the way that I get around at least some of this, I mean e- even talking back to the server, right, is I'll just put a stimulus controller on my application or on my view component, right? And then I have Rails serve the uh, the controller up using import maps and then, um, right, it, but what it winds up doing is it winds up looking through the DOM and kind of uh, hydrating after the fact whatever HTML I sent through on my web page. And then from there, I can tell Stimulus to do certain things with my application. I can have it transform different things, whether it's changing visibility for like a menu drop down or whether it's uh, replacing one section of page with the other, though Turbo's a better use for that in a lot of cases. But but you get the idea. It's the same kind of thing. And so what Stimulus Reflex does is it lets you set up action cable and then it does the back and forth over the web socket, which let's face it, 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 it is a little nicer than using Ajax. Um, and it's a little more responsive and things like that. But ultimately, you can achieve the same kind of thing um, without having to have React or Angular kind of take over that part of the page and manage every aspect of it, which which is why I go that way. But that's the thing that's beautiful about what we do, too, is that there are so many ways to solve it. And so, you know, if you want to build server components and um, I guess just regular components in React and, and you want it to work that way, you can. And it, it's a pretty elegant solution that way, too. Yeah. Although, although I will say, um, you will, I actually think there's like a design and this is maybe a little bit theoretical. There's like a design difference between something like react server components or like react proper and, um, what you would do with turbo. And that is yes. um, that you're, you're sort of, everything is sort of separated into, I'm trying to think about the best way to explain this. Like everything is sort of separated into verticals. So 
like you, you know, you have your controller with like some code and then maybe you have like some other like component with some code and then you have like some HTML and it's like the code is in a different file than the HTML. It's completely separate. Mm-hmm. And then that HTML like maybe goes to get another file for JavaScript. Like everything is grouped by technology um, and sort of like responsibility rather than by um, the like the function that you actually perceive on the mm-hmm. page as a user. So um, if you want to get a full experience, you kind of have to like, I don't know, you kind of have to go through the entire request response you know, event cycle, binding all of these separate pieces together. And at each step along the way, you have to keep track of what part of the page you're um, updating. And then, um, I don't know, actually do that update, uh, I think even like surgically. Uh, so when you're talking about like stimulus reflex, mm-hmm. and I can't remember what the name of the, uh, the thing is, the action, there's, there's this like action table that uh, gives you like helpers for making page updates based on selectors. Yeah, the turbo streams. Is it is it just yeah. called turbo streams? Yeah. yeah. I think it's all I mean, consolidated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like, like turbo streams, those are like surgical updates. So there's no there's no real there's there's no unified concept of like an encapsulated component. Any any place along there you could accidentally reach outside of the component and update something else on the page. And actually, you as a developer have to like make effort to you know uh, stay within the component. I think um, um, does that sound uh, right? That it kind of depends. So, um, so stuff like uh, stimulus or turbo, they put pretty good guardrails around it. You you don't have to go way out of your way to um, avoid touching stuff that's outside the scope of you know what you put your turbo tag or your uh, stimulus controller around, but all of that said, um, you are correct in the sense that, and for me, it's not necessarily like, oh, does the um, does the browser have to go and get this JavaScript and then do the work and then you know update the DOM and now it's got a separate HTML? I, I don't worry about that. For me, it's the mental model, right? It's keeping track of all the stuff, and I do have to say that having all of the stuff in one JSX file, it is pretty convenient. Um, I know that's sacrilege to some of my Ruby friends that that I actually like JSX because it blends both uh, technology syntax. You actually have HTML or what looks like HTML inside of your JavaScript functions and stuff like that. But all of that aside, the fact that I could just edit one component in one file and at the end of the day, I have one thing that does it, it, uh, it is pretty darn nice. Yeah, it, it sort of puts the encapsulation boundary around the piece of functionality that's yeah. facing the user rather than, um, I don't know, the individual like steps of the process. Uh, yeah, like, ultimately for me, it's if I have to go and modify it, I don't have to modify three places. I can just modify mm-hmm. one place. Yeah, I mean, re- revisiting GitHub's view component, right? Like I, like you, was... I thought that oh, this is the real solution to. The I still use them. I love them. You know, they they yeah. are great, but it's still like you have to like kind of podgepodge together Ruby code with the DOM. Yeah, and then also they have a yeah. separate like JavaScript stuff. But when you want to <laughs> sprinkle some in, uh, it's just like still doesn't like it's not cohesive, right? Well, yeah. so well, it is and it's not. I mean, it gets as close <laughs> as it can without putting it in the same file because I always use the sidecar setup for my components, which means I mean, that I have a Ruby file and then I have a folder with all the stuff, the HTML and the CSS and the JavaScript. If I'm adding those, 
to the component. So at the end of the day, what I wind up with is I wind up with, okay, I need to modify my header component. I know it's either in that one Ruby file that's in the components folder, or it's in that uh, sidecar folder where I can go and edit the HTML, JavaScript, and CSS. And sure, it's not all in the same file, but at least I can go find it all in the same place. I don't have to open up app models and then app views and then whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, revisiting the the live view from Phoenix, right? Like uh, that, I thought, oh, like, okay, you know, Rails is going to adopt a similar pattern where we just have a connection to a component and mm-hmm. scream any updates or destroy the connection if it no longer needs it on the page, right? Like we would have mm-hmm. this similar features because it seemed like that was the cohesive, cohesive step, right? Like, because you have a DOM chunk that represents a component and the server manages it remotely through a connection to the client and mm-hmm. that that all just works itself out through the framework. Uh, and it just seemed like we're we're slowly getting there again with all of this uh, hot wire stuff, yeah. but that's still not there on the on the rail side. I, I feel like to make to give like a concrete example that I feel like everyone can relate to. Like, imagine you want to build a form and you want to reuse that form in different parts of your application, and you want that form to validate itself as the user is entering data. Um, that in the current like Ruby on Rails model is a little bit tricky to do. View component can get you to a place where like, I mean, to be fair, a partial can get you to the place where you have a reusable form. Right. But that like, if you, especially if you don't want to like repeat your, you want to use the validations that are on your model, right? Like something mm-hmm. you want to write separate front-end validations. You want to validate in the same way the server would maybe after every, you know, maybe after the field blurs or something, maybe not every key press. That I think is a little um, tricky to do you could you could have a view component and then the view component could contain like a turbo stream, right? And then you could have like a like you could have that listen to a channel that's unique for each user. And then I think you'd still have to have a controller where you actually took the 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 logic or you using stimulus reflex, you'd have to have a reflex, right? Where it's like on blur, you'd have a method, and that method would sort of have to re-render either the view component or the partial and publish it to that user's channel, right? Like you have to, you have to coordinate all of this uh, together yourself. Uh, so so that's, that's how the turbo streams work uh, kind of now uh, is so that you can kind of like say, okay, here's a turbo stream signed for this user for this particular thing. And it does stream it there, but it still is like, you have to have that wired up on the server and the client mm-hmm. still, right? Like you have a, yeah. a view that has the the tie back to the server. <laughs> yeah, the other way you could do it is with stimulus, right? So you set on you have a blur function for each of the um each of the fields, and so when you blur off the field, right? Yeah, it does. It makes an end run call, you know, either over the WebSocket or via AJAX, and what, then comes back it? and updates the class. What is it? What does it do with that? With that blur? So, are you writing JavaScript that then makes a request to an endpoint yeah. that is dedicated to re-render that form, no matter where it is in the application? No. Or how do no. You... you what you would do is, or the way I would do it is, I would have it um, send the request. You know, whether I'm validating, it depends on if I'm validating the entire form or just that one um, field. But effectively, what I would do is I would pass the data down uh, via AJAX. I would just send a JSON of the form data. And then when it sent when it sends a request response back, I would have it send back a JSON uh, response, and then I would just add a, add the class and any text that I have to to the I see. Yeah. to the DOM. And you, it, 
Stimulus has some really nice DOM modification stuff. So you can you can slot stuff in above or below or around or wherever. Um, you can, you know, re-render just a little piece. Um, but you can also add classes to targets. And so you what you would do is you would make each of your fields a target. And so it would pull the data from the target, send it to the server, bring it back, and then update the target. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's all definitely possible, but it sounds like there's like there's some manual like um, there's still some manual uh, targeting. Like I, I don't know. I call it I call it surgical updates. Like there's still like you still have to like update that you have to know. You can't just have a part. You can't just declare have a partial that says like this is the state I want, and then like I don't know have it be replaced with that new state. You could. Um, okay. And then can you can you share that anywhere in the application? Like, like could you could you reuse that form? Okay, hey, that's great. Then yeah, the motion is uh, yeah. completely obsolete. That was, I mean, that was the thing that I wanted at the time that uh, I created it. <laughs> yeah, but you would you would have to use something like Turbo, like Valentino's talking about, where it, you know, you enter it, it sends it down, sends back up the, hey, these are still the errors that are there, or right you you would have to i mean it does require that end run to the server unless you want to duplicate your validation logic somewhere that's interesting um i know turbo isn't technically tied to rails but i always hear about it in a rails context have either of you seen um htmx at all or looked at htmx yes we had yeah. uh carson on the show did we have him on this show or was it on javascript jabber I think it must have been JavaScript Jabber. We had we had him on JavaScript Jabber recent uh, last year. Uh, we had him on this show, but it was a long, long time ago when he first put it out there before it was cool. And so, yeah. you know, maybe we're a little ahead of our time, but yeah, HTMX is really cool. Well, I think this this trend in the JavaScript ecosystem. It really, I mean, it is predated. I feel like by um, by all the like backend frameworks. So yeah. Cool to see it yep. unified together. I mean, it is funny because HTMX is. I, I look at it and I'm like, oh, it's very similar to Turbo. Um, it's kind of like Turbo, but not tied to Rails. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty slick to be honest. Um, I'm gonna go find that episode so we can drop it into the. Um, yeah, so we talked to him in 2023. We also talked to him about it in 2021 when he had first uh, switched over from Intercooler. So. I'll put both those links in the in the chat and in the show notes, but um, yeah, it's it's definitely cool stuff. I think it got popularized more recently by the Primogen on YouTube. Mm, yeah, that checks out. Yeah, YouTube dev content has uh, has gotten really good. Appreciate that yeah. for sure. Primogen's funny too. So. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like I I should uh, get more involved. Uh, it's it's unfortunate, you know. You just start doing stuff for work, and uh, you're—I I don't know. I find anyway that when I do stuff for work, it kind of like uses up the part of my brain that maybe I would do <laughs> recreational programming with. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I kind of kind of get done with work, and I'm like, eh. every now and then something really speaks to me. I'll spend time on it. But I do want to get back into the Ruby on Rails ecosystem and see mm -hmm. what has happened in the past couple of years that I've been away. Um, it sounds like some really cool stuff has been done. And um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder how much. I wonder how close you can get to the experience I want uh, with just off-the-shelf standard framework things. Now it sounds like you can get really close. So that's that's great to it, hear. It kind of depends on what you consider off-the-shelf standard 
framework stuff, right? Because uh, some people consider things like stimulus and turbo, you know, beyond kind of how Rails uses them without you really doing anything about it. Like turbo, for example, um, turbo's built into Rails. And so if you if you build a Rails app and you you make a request to the server, it uses Turbo to do that, and it only re-renders the parts of your page that changed, right, without you doing anything. Um, but a lot of people with with the stuff beyond that, yeah, they they don't consider that, I guess, vanilla Rails, but it's definitely heading that way. And if you look at uh, DHH's talk from Rails World, he really goes into a lot of that stuff and says, hey, now we have these uh, areas of functionality with Turbo, right? So I think it was Turbo... Uh, was it Turbo Frames? There was some aspect of Turbo that was just barely added, um, right? Yeah, there's and like he, a whole uh, morphing thing that was actually borrowed yeah. from Stimulus Reflex. Uh, yeah. That was recently added. Yeah, there was some drama around that too, but we won't go into that. Um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so so yeah, so there's that. There's Strata, um, you know, Turbo Native. Um, we had Joe Mazzalotti on to talk about um, how Rails apps essentially can get wrapped up uh, to provide a mobile app experience kind of a thing. Um, I'm, I'm also interviewing uh, him for the Ruby Dev Summit in February. Um, so anyway, there's, there's all kinds of cool stuff. So if you're looking to get back into the Rails ecosystem and see what's going on with a lot of this stuff, I'd start there. Um, there are some other kind of more internal stuff like with the uh, solid cache and solid queue that are worth looking at, but those aren't in the realm that we're talking about here. So you, you mentioned you mentioned before, Alec, like the if you've gone away from Rails uh, and more into the client side. I'm curious, like how a lot of this stuff has evolved on the the front end side because I'm very disconnected, I guess, from like the whole Next.js, uh, you know, movement. <laughs> uh, you know. What what have you seen from there that maybe is like you see as like huge advantage? Like, because to me, I see anytime like there's like a, a point at which like the application becomes so client heavy that it's like, why do you have all this other stuff that when you could just mm -hmm. use the same thing for the server? Um, like, do you where is your like? Yeah. Like, well, I have to use it this right. Well, well, actually, before before I answer that question, if you don't mind, I want to say I want to say one thing really quickly, which is I think that the Rails, um, like I think that Turbo is still ahead of like React and like what's currently going on in the client world in uh, with with things like Action Cable and Streams. It's actually really easy to um, stream things and have like real time applications in Ruby on Rails. I think it's still easier mm -hmm. to do that in Ruby on Rails than it is in anything that I currently know of with um, React. Uh, like, it's just, it's just I, I think it's just easier. Like, obviously, Socket IO has been around for a long time and stuff, but you have to wire that all up manually. Whereas, there. like, with, with Turbo Frames, um, it's pretty easy to have something where it's like, I just want to have this be live for all the users of my application. And so that's pretty neat. There, uh, I think the, I think you're, you, you're kind of there. Um, I, I have to admit, I haven't played with them, but Remix and Redwood JS both are playing in this space where they have the front end and the back end that are made to talk to each other. Yeah. Um, I can't remember. I think now Whoa. that I mention it, I think Redwood JS uses Prisma and that's actually HTTP calls. It's not a, a stream. 
Um, but I think Remix, they were working on some stuff with the streams and I haven't I haven't used Remix. So maybe to, to go back to answering your question, Valentino, like what what do I what do I think is really cool about the front end world currently? Um I think uh this this reactive it's it's happened in a couple of different frameworks. Like it happened in solid JS, I feel like with the server dollar sign syntax, and then React added the use server directive. Um this like idea of um, having one code base where you have some code that's running on the server and some code that's running on the client, and it's it's just and, and making a request to the server is just a function call away. Um, I think that's a huge productivity win. That is, and yeah. it it does have some like big downsides. The main one is accidentally leaking secrets. Like if you have like environment variables that are in your bundle. Or something. Uh, it's really easy to accidentally have your client bundle include privileged information that's only supposed to be available in your server environment. Um, but uh, there are ways around that. Next.js has like this thing where you have to you have to like prefix all of your environment variables with like public or something, or else they can't possibly be included in client builds, which is a nice workaround. So um, yeah, I think in the JavaScript world, uh, one I, I think I think deployment is. A lot easier than my experience. Like Vercel has made it so easy to just like have a and Netlify too to just have a GitHub repo and you can just immediately start building something that like works using React. And then it's like, do you need to do something privileged? MBD add a little directive to your function. It can even be in the same file. And now that code runs at the edge on a server. Right. Mm-hmm. And it has, you know, and it can connect to your database and stuff. But from your client, it just looks like you're making a function call. I think that, I think that's really, really cool. Um, so um, I, I want to push back on that too. Um, I agree. I, I really like what Gu- uh, Guillermo and those guys over at Vercel, um, I've been to Netflix offices a handful of times because they're just, you know, I've been in San Francisco and they're like, come on over. Um, uh, you know, and I did some events and some other things, some videos with them. But uh, it's kind of like the Heroku argument with Ruby and Rails, right? And so you've got you've got the nice Heroku type story for Vercel and Netlify. Incidentally, you can also push Next.js and stuff to Heroku, but that's another thing. Mm-hmm. the The thing that's interesting to me, though, about uh, the deployment stories is that I don't see anybody talking about how to deploy this to your own system, right? Yeah. So if I want to go and I want to host it on a digital ocean droplet that cost me four bucks a month, as opposed to, hey, I hit my limit on Vercel or Netlify and now I've got to pay through the nose for this. That that's yeah. the same issue that we ran into with Heroku. And so yeah, the Vercel story is slick. It is so nice. And if you're doing uh serverless functions, then they've got that nailed down. And the the Heroku setups and things like that, or if you're deploying on your own, that that is trickier for sure. But uh all in all. I yeah. think it depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, well, and I, I will say I do think there. Um, I mean, this is this is just this is uh, this is not even like a unique to me hot take, but uh, this is this is a hot take. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, I I think that people will often talk about how Next.js is tied to Vercel and it's difficult to deploy anywhere but Vercel. But I think. Um, I think I think the Heroku example with Ruby on Rails is really analogous. It's it's not that Heroku it's not that Rails is really difficult to deploy any 
where it's not, you know, there's not something evil going on with Heroku. It's just that it's kind of difficult to set up infrastructure and deploy applications. And I think the same thing is true of Next.js. These are really elaborate infrastructures that you can, in principle, set up. Um, and that can be complicated. And if it is, then you have this, you know, this great, you can just, you can pay for sell to do it for you. But right. uh, the Next.js framework, like it is, it is possible to, um, you know, if you want to do it in its most simple configuration, you can just run it as a node server, right? And it'll it'll serve yeah. all the serverless functions and stuff. That's its most naive configuration. Because you, I, if you were going to run that, you'd probably have to have like an EC2 instance that's just constantly using resources running as a node server. Or, mm. um, but well, that's just also, like us running yeah. Puma behind Nginx. Exactly, exactly. You can run it like you would run a traditional Rails application. What gets a little bit more complicated is if you wanted to like actually set up the Lambda functions yourself. Yeah. But again, that's complicated because. Let's be real. AWS is really complicated. I literally, so much of my, so I work on, uh, it's called developer environments, but a, a, lot, a lot of my job intersects with configuring AWS and um, mm-hmm. it's just very complicated. And, <laughs> and so um, that's not Next.js's fault. It's just, it's just very complicated. You have to build each, you have to do a little separate bundle for each one of the server functions. You have to figure out how to like upload the server functions, and then, you know, you probably want to automate all of that, and there's a million ways to do everything on AWS, depending on how your policies are set up. Um, so, I don't know. I guess my hot take is, I think that Next.js uh, does the best it possibly can at being able to be deployed somewhere other than yourself. It's just hard to deploy uh, that architecture. Yeah, I, I've been... So, uh, lately, I've been using Kamal to deploy my Rails apps, mm-hmm. and... I've been tempted to see if I can essentially run my what would be Lambda functions, right? Except they, they might be a Rails app written in Rhoda or Sinatra or something. Um, or even, you know, in Opal. <laughs> I don't know. You you might be able to do Opal on Lambda sure. since it transpiles. Yeah. Anyway, um, but just see if there's a way to deploy those with Kamal as well so that it's like, hey, you know, just stand up this little app and then just you know, run it out there on its own endpoint. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer to that is, but um, yeah, it's interesting to see what the options are and, and where the limits are. And I can tell you, I'm in a, a Discord where we discuss Kamal and people people struggle with it all the time. Um, well, I think what in is, some ways... What is Kamal? Is it like a... Is it... Like just briefly, I guess I could Google it. But so, like, what is it? It's a deployment tool. Does it like configure yeah. infrastructure? Does it use Docker? Like I don't know. It uses Docker. So so effectively, the difference is uh, Capistrano. You're probably more familiar with that. If you yeah, or like Mina, Mina Capistrano, like SSH yeah, so into SSH into your box and run a bunch of commands. Mm-hmm. Um, what um, Kamal does is it builds a Docker container. It pushes it into a container repository. And then it pulls it down to the server you're deploying it to. And it basically, uh, you know, stands it up and then kills the other one when it gets a health check back from the one you're standing up. And so... Um, is, it, is it fair to say it's an alternative to Kubernetes then? It kind of sounds like a container orchestration yeah, layer sort uh, of thing. No, it, it doesn't really do a whole lot of container orchestration like Kubernetes does. Um, it literally just goes into the machine and uses the Docker utility in Linux and says... Okay, we're going to stand up this server. It does the health checks, and then once the health checks set, uh, check out, and it's ready to cut over, then it cuts it over and kills the old Docker container. Yeah. Um. And and it's it's pretty slick, but yeah, it it's a little more of a mind bend when you run into trouble because 
with Capistrano, it would crap an error out right into your, sorry, the way I put it, but it would put an error right into your console, right? Instead of with Kamal, sometimes the problem exists on the Docker container. And yes, you can connect to the Docker container using Kamal, but it's not always as straightforward how you figure out where the issue is or what the problem was. Yeah, and that's really the um, the dark side of encapsulation. Like, like it's kind of interesting. Uh, it makes it harder, I feel like, to or for me, not encapsulation, isolation, right? Like, like uh, it's why like I don't like using Docker for development. Um, maybe like separate services that an application uses, like like a Postgres server or something. I'll run that in the container. But when I'm developing an application, I don't want to like run my Rails server in development mode with like a bind mouse between the files. Like it's just, I'd rather just run the server locally because it makes it so much easier to connect to and debug and figure out what's going on. Um, so yeah. I can see how like, I don't know, that would carry over to deployments too. When you have stuff in containers, it seems like it's sometimes hard to figure out exactly what's going on. Yeah, sometimes. But the the deployment is a lot cleaner. And Mm-hmm. At the at the end of the day, it turned out to be a lot easier to manage my stuff. And if I need to scale it up, I just give it another server to deploy to, and it'll put one on there too, and load balance the whole thing. So, yeah, you- and and that's that's the issue I don't see as much with the uh, front end focused alternatives like Next or even in view with Nuxt or whatever. Is that if I want to deploy it somewhere other than these, you know, Netlify and uh, Vercel and Heroku, you know, they have the recipe. And so they just pour the recipe out and it's done, which is really nice. But sometimes I just don't want to pay for that for my side project. And I'd rather just throw it, like I said, on a yeah. $5 a month yeah. server. And so that's that's the trade-off that I'm talking how, about is... Have you looked at Vercel's and Netlify's pricing? I'm curious how active your side project is. I, for what it's worth, I don't know how sustainable this is. These, for all I know, these are VC-backed companies where their long-term plan is to turn around and raise the That's prices. true. They do have a free but, tier. But as, it, no, but as it stands right now, they have a very generous free tier. Yeah. Like, like I've found in the few things that I've deployed that I've not needed to pay anything. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I'm not building anything that's blowing up. So uh, Also, so, that's, that's today. Or, you know, Heroku yeah. was the same way. Sure. Yeah. yeah so, exactly. So maybe they, they kind of want to lock you in and then they'll, sure. So top end devs before it was top end devs when it was dev Um, I had built the whole site on 11D and I had mm-hmm. deployed it to Netlify and, and I had a deal with them, a sponsorship deal. And so I was, I was getting some of my hosting discounted and it was still super expensive and it was exceptionally difficult for me to troubleshoot on Netlify. Now, that may change and it may be different with something like Next.js because I haven't used it for quite a while. But that, that was the other thing, hang up that I had is that um, with, with something like Kamal or even when I was just, you know, deploying to Puma Nginx on a regular server, I could get into the server and I could see whatever I wanted. And, and that was the major difference for me too. So, but yeah, the the I have to say the, the deployment story on those is super nice because you just hook it up to your Git repo when you're off, you're done. Yeah, the the, the client like, like the developer uh, infrastructure contract is really good. Like it's just it's it's yeah, it's very intuitive and um, it's interoperable between platforms almost at this point. I guess when I say that, I'm thinking between two platforms, Vercel and uh, Netlify. Uh, in my experience, maybe there are other ones too. That have a similar workflow. Um, yeah, but, but for yeah. my production app, it it started to cost me real money. 
So I see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that's kind of like weird about this like server function world um, is that it, uh, you, it's really, it's, it's doing databases. is just strange. Like it's just, it's like um, there are, there are different like solutions that are being built to deal with this, but in since, since cloud functions like have to start and stop, they can't really like keep a connection to a database open. So right. like, you in a normal Node.js app or Rails app, you like, you know, you, you open up five connections to a Postgres thing and then you, you know, you divvy them out per request, check them in, check them out of the connection pool. You can't really do that in um, server functions because they, they have to start and stop. So you don't want to spend all your time like, you know, negotiating the connection just to then immediately tear it down. Databases just aren't optimized for that. So there's this other layer. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it's called uh, Planet Scale. Yeah. PlanetScale mm-hmm. has an HTTP API for making like SQL requests. It's very interesting. Uh, and it's like a direct response to this like need to just really quickly do database requests but not have a good place to put them. So um, I don't know. There, and, that, and that's pretty costly because then you're literally, I think with uh, PlanetScale, you're, you're paying like um, a combination of like per query and then also like the number of rows in the table or something that your query runs against. They have kind of a weird price. It's it's just, um, my understanding is it's, they have a very generous free tier, but I, I don't know if your application got popular, I have no idea how much you would, you would pay. It's kind of hard to see through that. The infrastructure sort of demands a strange pricing model. Yeah. Well, planet scale is interesting too, because I think they're backed on the SQLite. No, I think PlanetScale, maybe they are. I think PlanetScale is my SQL. I know what you're talking about, but there's another really cool new thing that came out with SQLite. Uh, but I, I I, think it uses like, it's Rust and SQLite. I think it was in This Week in Rust. Um, I don't think it's PlanetScale. I think there is another. Maybe maybe it's an, one of their competitors. But yeah, um, SQLite. Is it, like, is it like TurboDB? It could be. Yeah, but, I, but yeah, the SQLite has some interesting limitations too that, I've been talking to Stephen Margheim. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's been doing some interesting stuff with SQLite and Rails um, because SQLite has some of the connection limitations where um, it, it does sequential writes. I think that's what they called it. So you can only have one thing writing to the database at a time where Postgres and MySQL can lock part of a table. Okay. And all right, and so it can say, uh, don't, don't change anything here, right? And so unless it has to wait for that one piece, it can go write somewhere else too. On one of your other connections, um, but SQLite doesn't do that. So um, anyway, they've had some interesting workarounds with that. But it's been interesting talking about SQLite possibly scaling as well. Yeah, just on a total tangent since we're off in tangent land anyway. Yeah, um, yeah. I yeah, SQLite is really interesting. I think SQLite, like in every configuration that I've seen it, maybe with the exception of this new service that's using SQLite, it it writes to a file. Um, yes. Like there's no server. Like your application connects directly to a file. So it I, it makes sense to me that it would have this limitation. It probably has to use the operating system's file locks to... So yeah. it's probably only one process can mutate things. Yep. Yeah, yep. That, that totally makes sense. Um, anyway, he's going to come on in a couple of months and talk to us about that. And I talked to him about it for Ruby Dev Summit as well. But yeah, anyway. Um. I have to jump at, off actually in like 20 minutes. Uh, I have, I'm have i interviewing Amir Rajan for the Ruby Dev Summit about Dragon Ruby. Um, so yeah, I, I'm going to kind of segue us back onto track. Um, is there anything else uh, 
within the realm of kind of this, you know, front end, back end uh, uh, coordination layer that we haven't talked about that we should cover before we do our picks? No, I think I think I think I'm satisfied. Um, sorry, I don't have more information. I'm I'm honored to have been on the show. It's cool to talk about something that uh, I built a while ago. Um, sorry, there isn't more to say about it. But uh, I'm also glad that there's been a lot of innovations, both on the client side and the server side. It seems like we're getting some. Um, seems like no matter which one you choose, you have really great options. And um, the and while I still think it is the case that there are. There, there, there are benefits to choosing one or the other. Those benefits are getting like smaller and smaller. I think we're really quickly getting to a place of parity. So it's just um, exciting to it's an exciting time to be alive. Awesome. Yep. All right. Um, I'm also just going to throw in. We talked about uh, Live View. You can go check out Elixir Mix. There are plenty of episodes on that. Um, if you're interested in React server components, uh, we did episodes on JavaScript Jabber and on React Roundup with Dan Abramov and a few other people. Um, so if you're interested in those topics, you can go check them out. And then, um, I know we're planning on talking about some of the new stuff in stimulus turbo and strata Hotwire in general. And we, we cover those on a regular basis here. So, uh, keep an ear out. Um, and yeah, let's go ahead and do some picks. Valentino, you want to start us off with picks? Uh, sure. So I, I've been, uh, Toying around with the idea of uh, fine tuning and training my own AI models. Uh, <laughs> nice. And I've discovered the uh, the Lambda platform, our Lambda Labs. Uh, they have GPU workstations you could buy. Uh, they're insanely expensive, but <laughs> I've been eyeing them and maybe pulled the trigger. But uh, either way, I'm going to be building a, a, a AI workstation soon, so I can run my own inference on my local network and. Uh, you use AI for our household oh, nice. uh, for some fun. So uh, excited to do that. Cool. Um, I'm going to jump in with a few picks. Uh, I'm going to start out with a board game pick. Uh, this is one I picked quite a long time ago. I do a board game every time, Alec, by the way. Um, so this one's called the... Um, uh, I always just call it Arnak. Um, what's the name of the game? It's something of Arnak. Um, Lost Ruins of Arnak. There we go. And uh, anyway, it's kind of an interesting game. If you're, if you're a board game um, enthusiast, you, you kind of get the idea that there are several games. So there's like worker placement games uh, where you put your worker on a space and you get stuff back or it has a, an effect. Um, there's deck building games. There are economy games. There are tech ladder games. Arnak is all of the above. So... Um, basically, uh, you also get to go explore different areas on the map. Um, but it's, it's got this really nice balance. So if you do a ton of exploration and somebody else does a ton of, uh, tech, you don't, you can't just say, oh, well, that's the way to win it. Right. Um, it usually helps to go up the tech ladder, at least some, right. But, uh, you know, you don't have to do it to win. So if, if you're fighting somebody else for that, distinction right you can go pick up points in another area um there's another game that i can't think of off the top of my head that kind of has the same dynamic where there are like four or five different ways to build points and win um but anyway it is so fun um my buddies and i we played it uh last wednesday for our game night um and uh yeah i think it took us 
two hours with four of us, maybe a little longer to play it. Um, it's simple enough that, that like a teenager could play it. Board Game Geek actually has a weight on it of 2.91 um, out of five. And so uh, two, like I tell everybody, is kind of your um, semi-complex uh, casual gamer game, right? Um, I think Monopoly's like a one. I think Settlers of Catan's around a two. So that kind of give you an idea. Anyway, so I, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, I've enjoyed that game so much that I went and got the expansion and the expansion is just more fun. Um, so anyway, uh, I'm going to pick uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak. Uh, a couple of other things, uh, two things I'm going to announce real quick. One is the Ruby Dev Summit. Um, I'm going to be releasing the videos for 24 hours um, in February. So I'm, I'm just releasing five videos a day for four days. And uh, so, yeah, you have to be on top of it to get them. Or if you're a subscriber to Ruby Bits or Rails Clips, then you can get them as part of your subscription. And I'm going to have my team start putting them into the um, subscription basket early. So you can go watch them early if you want. Because um, I've already done like six or seven of the interviews. I'm doing two more this afternoon. Um, and then I'm doing like five or six next week. So uh, Valentino's on my list, by the way. So uh, if you want to hear what he thinks about the future of Ruby, go check that out. Um, and then Ruby Clips and Rails Clips. Um, I've been recording videos for those as well. So those are kind of like uh, Rails casts. Um, and uh, the first video I did, I just kind of explained. I just set up a Rails app and then I kind of told you what I was going to build. Second episode, um, I actually picked up a Tailwind UI template, but all of their templates are React and ne uh, Next.js. So what did I do? I went and I translated all of that into uh, view components in Ruby on Rails. Because so, I'm a glutton for punishment and I wanted to do it in Rails. So uh, if you want to see me translate the menu bar at the top from one to the other, it took me about a half hour. Um, you can go check that out. I'm going to do the uh, collapsible mobile menu uh, next, right? So that's going to be the next video I record probably this afternoon. So anyway, super excited about that. And then my wife and I have been watching a show on... Netflix, I think. It's called The Diplomat. And it's got Carrie Russell in it. And uh, she she gets made the diplomat in England. That happens pretty early. They start out talking about her being the diplomat to Afghanistan. And then uh, she gets reassigned for various reasons. Uh, that all happens in the first episode, so I don't feel like I'm giving too much away there. But uh, anyway, so she's managing this crisis, uh, this international crisis, and we've really been enjoying it. Um, I am also going to pick VidAngel. Um, so my wife and I, we've been watching it using VidAngel. And what VidAngel does is it... Um, effectively, you sign into Netflix with VidAngel. And then you can watch the show on VidAngel. And you can say, I don't want to... My, like my wife doesn't want to hear any F words, S words, um, you know, some other words. And so she just tells it, I don't want to hear any of those words. And so what it does is it, it uses uh, programming. So somebody's watched it and flagged where all those words are. Uh, flagged where the nudity is. Flagged where the sex scenes are. Flagged where violence is, right? And then if you don't want to see the blood and gore in the show, if there's blood and gore in the show, not, there's not this one. There is sex in it, I guess. Because we'll see the scene skip. So it'll strategically skip 30 seconds or 22 seconds or whatever. And so uh, anyway, um, that's if you want to watch those shows with kids or if you have some moral objection to certain parts of the shows. This has allowed us to watch some shows we wouldn't otherwise watch that we've enjoyed. So uh, VidAngel, 
is is my uh, last pick. Uh, Alec, what are your picks? Well, the first one I'm actually, I suppose I'm going to lift from you, Charles. I did a tiny bit of research. It's, it's Terso. Terso is the SQL light as a service. Yeah. And uh, yep. they're, yeah, they're maintaining uh, LibSQL, which is, uh, I my understanding is it's, it's intended to be an enhanced drop-in replacement for SQL light. It has slightly different goals, supports things like having a server. Uh, it's, and it's, um, it's, got, it's got a Rust layer if you're somebody who just is looking for a reason to study Rust code. So I think that's pretty interesting, both as a product and like as a project initiative. So I guess I'll, I'll shout that out. Um, since we're shouting out like general media stuff, I'll also shout out um, a podcast called Discomfortable. Uh, it's a little bit older, new episodes are being made, but uh, if you're somebody who is in a place where you want to actualize a little bit more, get comfortable with your shame, it's an incredibly engaging podcast I found. I think it's helped me make some positive changes in my life. And so I want to, uh, I don't know, pay that forward and suggest to others that it may also be helpful for you. Um, TV shows. Uh, I loved, this is a little bit old, but I loved the Theranos. Um, uh, I think that was a Hulu original series, limited series, very, very good. Um, I also enjoyed, they, they had a limited series on Uber as well, that I thought was interesting. Uh, I, I've really been enjoying these like exposés on people who, um, I don't know, scam others, like these, these big scams that happen to society. How do they happen? What are the motivations behind them? Uh, I don't know. I think that's interesting. And, um, we're living, I don't know, in the golden age of these. Uh, another one is there was one that recently came out on Apple TV about the um, beanie. I think it's called the Beanie Bubble about Beanie Babies, the creator of Beanie Babies, um, and sort of how he did that. It's it's very interesting. I think you can come for the Beanie Babies and stay for a little deep dive into what to look for in um, unhealthy relationships. Actually, so uh, I'd recommend uh, I'd recommend that as well. Um, Gosh, I think that's I think that's it for me. All right, cool. If people want to connect with you on the internet, where do they find you? Uh, I don't do social media, so you can find me on GitHub or and on my. You can email me hello at alec.ninja, which is also on my GitHub. Um, otherwise, uh, I moved to Portland back in 2020, and the meetup scene hasn't really been very active here. I would say come find me at a meetup, but uh, I don't know. I might I might change that. I'm thinking about toying with the idea of trying to revive uh, at least one local meetup here. So maybe you can come find me in person at some point if you're in Portland. Awesome. I should probably put out there that next month I intend to, in earnest, start doing a weekly meetup for Rails develop- Ruby and Rails developers. Um, and it's just going to be a mix between sort of the social get to know you. Like one week will be that. One week I'll have somebody... Uh, who's an expert in something, right? So if we wanted to talk about turbo and stimulus, right? I'd have somebody that is an expert in that come talk to us. Um, I may present on something that I've picked up, learned, or want to talk to, or just answer questions. Um, but I want to create that environment because the the meetup scene here in Salt Lake is dead too. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, look, th- this is the place where I get inspired by talking to people and go, oh, wow, this is th- that was cool, you know, or how do I solve this? Well, they did this over here, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I completely agree. It's going to be at Ray, uh, rubygeniuses.com. Um, so you can, you can check that out as well, but yeah, I'm not ready to launch that yet. So yeah, it's, I'll, a I'll big, it's, it's, 
it's a big um, commitment to organize a meetup. I've never done it myself, but I've been kind of adjacent to people who were. Uh, back when I lived in Omaha, the Omaha Ruby meetup used to be hosted at one of my employers. And um, there's a lot of organizing that goes into it, you know, especially if you have like lightning talks. I mean, you know, you're, yeah. you're running a whole podcast. So there's just, there's a lot of organizing that goes into it, but I do think it's a, it's a positive thing for the people who attend. So. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, I'll go ahead and uh, end the stream here. Uh, thanks for coming. Till next time, folks, Max out.